0: Welcome to the Remove the Guesswork podcast. Hello, welcome to the latest edition of the Remove the Guesswork podcast. I'm Leanne Spencer. Before we get going on to today's show, I just want to two things: one, to re- read up the review of the week on iTunes, and this week it's by Gigi Fleet who writes a fascinating and varied podcast with interviews which bring health and fitness issues to light and help you make lifestyle changes a reality. Leanne is a warm and inquisitive interviewer. These podcasts cover a range of topics with engaging subjects and personalities, a must listen for highly active and busy people. Thank you very much for that Gigi Fleet and for everybody else who's written a review that we haven't read out. We do read every single one and we do take the feedback on board. It means a great deal to us. So please if you haven't already, jump onto iTunes and leave us a review. We really appreciate that. And also to announce the winner of our competition. So we were running a competition to collect as many reviews and feedback as we could. Proficio FD, your review is the winning review. It's one we picked out at random. So please get in touch with us at infobodyshopperformance.com. And we will give you your prize, which of course is the DNA test post consultation. So thank you very much, as I say, to everybody who's left reviews, and um, congratulations to Proficio FD. Please get in touch with us at info@bodyshopperformance.com. At okay, to this week's guest. This week's guest is Rita Aurora, uh, not to be confused with the singer. Uh, this particular Rita is a qualified pharmacist by trade, but she spent the last few years working as a nutritionist working with busy professionals to help them predominantly around issues relating to to gut and digestive health and energy. And Rita and I have known each other for a couple of years. We've done some work together with clients. And in this particular interview, we talk mainly about the six biggest issues that Rita sees clients having with their nutrition. So I hope you're gonna enjoy this. There's lots of value in here. You may need pen and paper. Um, We'll also talk a little bit about Rita's story and what got her into nutrition and about what she sees the future of personalized nutrition looking like. So the guest is Rita Arora, and I hope you enjoy the show. Rita, welcome to the show. Thank you, Leanne. Yeah, great. I'm looking forward to this. So um, let's start here. I know we're we're pushed for time. I know we've got a lot to get through, so let's crack straight on. Tell me your story. How did you get into nutrition? So um,
1: I'm a pharmacist as well as a nutritionist, and I'd suffered with bloating for pretty much all my life. And I'd taken um, supplements like peppermint oil for years just to alleviate the symptoms. Mm. And I was actually sat in a dentist waiting room with my children and read an article in a a magazine about a reporter who'd gone to see a nutritionist. And as time is of the essence with more children, I immediately rung the telephone number, booked an appointment, (laughs) saw a nutritionist uh, the following week um, who asked me to do a stool test a little bit of a history um, and then I went back three weeks later, got my results, was given some supplements and a diet and then I went back again after another three weeks and my symptoms had all gone, I'd lost weight and I'd never felt better and I, I think instead of alleviating symptoms, felt like I'd treated the cause and I was kind of surprised that in my 15 years of practicing as a pharmacist, one, that I didn't know that there was such a thing as an overgrowth of yeast, Mm. and secondly that instead of just treating symptom, I could actually treat the cause, so I was like, wow, this was quite mind-blowing for me as well, and to think that diet could influence that as well Um, because in a pharmacy degree, you maybe do about 10 hours of um, teaching on, on nutrition to be able to kind of counsel the general public Um, So for me, it was a massive um, eye-opener. And then I decided that uh, as soon as the children were a little bit older and I could sort out childcare, that I was going to retrain. So I still maintain my pharmacy qualification. But that, for me, was the real um, opener in changing my own health. Mm. Uh, As I began studying, uh, I actually realized as well that I had uh, an opportunity to fix myself with two autoimmune conditions I had, namely psoriasis and Hashimoto's thyroiditis. And a simple thing, such as removing gluten from my diet, sorted out my psoriasis. And in terms of my Hashimoto's thyroiditis, which is actually where you've got antibodies produced against your own thyroid hormone that is under control, that I no longer need levothyroxine. So um, quite a journey in terms of fixing my own health and realising that there are options out there that don't involve just alleviating symptoms.
0: Mm, brilliant. I mean, what has what that meant to you as well in terms of your lifestyle? What is getting oh, on top mean, of it, those things?
1: It's, it's phenomenal not to suffer with bloating. And I see a lot of clients who come to me who have tried um, cutting out things, tried elimination diets. They've tried um, over-the-counter medication. And to have a story where you resonate with your client and you know that you can, you know if not completely get rid of it, at least alleviate those symptoms by looking at what might be the driver, it's massively empowering so for me it was a new a new way of helping people that wasn't just sorting out um as i say symptoms but actually treating cause. and for me personally just having well-being and rather than just managing things is is massively empowering because i've got loads of energy yeah i feel great so it's massively empowering
0: and I, I understand you've done all this through just changing what you eat rather than any yeah. kind of synthetic help, i.e., a pill or, or even yeah. a synthetic supplement. I mean, that yeah. in itself must be hugely empowering. And that, of course, is something that you can con- constantly control, more or less. Yeah. You know, what, what food you put into your body is, is pretty much within all of our control, with a bit of planning, yeah. preparation and, and forethought. Um, I must say, though, Leanne, sometimes
1: we need supplements Hmm. to um, counter the effects of an overgrowth of something. So, for example, uh, when people take antibiotics, in all other European countries, you're given a probiotic to help with the good bacteria that are also getting killed. In the UK, that does not happen, although more doctors are becoming aware. Hmm. So supplements will have a place in treating something like an overgrowth of a yeast, they will have a place in um, alleviating initially what's your driver. But then eventually we should get onto fairly quickly a way of changing what you eat to either improve those symptoms or manage them completely. Um, So absolutely, changing what you eat can have a massive difference on how you feel. Mm.
0: And for clarity, you know, with the antibiotic thing, it's a fascinating subject. And we've got someone coming up on the podcast in a few weeks to talk about gut health specifically. But Mm -hmm. with antibiotics, they kill all the bacteria, don't they? They're indiscriminate. So the probiotic is designed to put some good bacteria back into the the gut flora to counteract the damage um, that the antibiotics and the collateral damage that the antibiotics have done.
1: Absolutely, yeah. and, and and the other thing as well is making sure we put something in called FOSS and GOSS. and they're the foods that feed your natural good bacteria. So just putting in a probiotic on its own has its merits, but we also want those those good bacteria to to be healthy and sustain. And the way we can do that is by putting in those good foods that they feed on, um, which I'm sure you'll cover more when you look at gut health in a few more weeks. But yeah. very important yeah
0: cool um before we go into or before you share with us the biggest mistakes you see people making around nutrition what kind of people do you typically work with um my type of client tends to be um busy professionals
1: who have um been very meticulous in managing their uh, kind of diet in some ways they've often medically presented with a uh, bloating there's one example or digestive issues they've gone and had a check in terms of a colonoscopy or a gastroscopy to rule out anything more sinister and then it tends to be conversation at work where somebody says oh i had that and i did that and go and see this girl she will help you sort out your symptoms so my typical clients are recommendations Um, And they tend to be people who have been quite, you know, seem quite knowledgeable about their health and are proactive in trying to um, establish good health, but don't seem to have got anywhere. And it's something more subtle that kind of medical intervention isn't necessarily picking up. Mm. And I want to clarify medical intervention has its time and place. And therefore, when somebody comes to see me, if those checks have occurred, even better because we can rule out something more sinister like an inflammation of the large intestine that might be picked up on a blood test so they might have high um, If somebody had that condition they'd have markers to indicate indicate that we need to do further investigation so if if people have already done that we're already in a position to say well actually this is something more subtle mm. so it tends to be people to go back to your question who are proactive ish in their health management
0: yeah, but frustrated they're not getting the results or the outcome yeah, and they've still got the symptoms. Not, yeah, Not
1: getting to what's going on um, and kind of a bit fed up, actually. And they're like, well, just tell me what I need to do and I'll do it. Mm. So they're very compliant when they do come um, because they've they've often gone through a fair few different health
0: professionals before they've found you. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, let's get into it. I mean, what are some of the biggest mistakes that you see people making around nutrition? Yeah. I suppose it
1: were one of the biggest ones is mistaking thirst for hunger. So um, often people who maybe have some weight management issues will say, but I'm always hungry and I've had a high metabolism and I've always eaten portion sizes like this. But actually, there is a formula for how much water we should be drinking. And that formula is 35 mils of water per kilogram of body weight so somebody like me that's probably only 50 kilos that's just under two liters but you can imagine a six foot 100 kilo gentleman would need a lot more than me would probably need up to four kilos often people have uh, Uh, often people have read on the internet things like um about drinking too much water about something called hyponatremia Mm. where we mineral sodium in our body so there's a a bit of a fear for going up too far in terms of water intake and i would be saying things like well let's actually look at what your um, milliliter requirement is and let's talk about when you think you're hungry and when are you actually getting your water in and i would encourage people if they do that calculation to try and have had half their water intake by 12 midday So if you see clients that are training either fasting or training first thing in the morning, that first 500 mils is generally very easy. They can do that while they're at the gym. They might eat after training or they might eat before training. Um, And getting that next half a litre in is more tricky. And that's when they say things like, well, I'm hungry by 11 o'clock. Often it's not hunger, it is thirst. So getting their water intake up. One of the biggest things um, that I would first start off with with a client.
0: Mm. And do you typically think people under drink in terms of water? Yes, they do. Yeah, I, um, <laughs> I think
1: they do. I think it's one of those things. It's finding ways where it becomes less of a, uh, an issue, whether, it, whether depending on how you are, or, um, how you function. So some people will use an app as a reminder, um, where they actually record and then it starts to buzz when they need to start drinking a bit more. Yeah. For some people, it might be as simple as just having a fancy water bottle or a water bottle that they like that they fill up from the water cooler in the morning and know that they're going to do that after lunch as well. So it's finding um, ways to motivate people where it becomes less of a choice, something they shouldn't have to think about. is more of a natural thing.
0: Yeah. Brilliant. Okay. Uh, mistake number two.
1: Um, low carbohydrate diets Mm -hmm. so particularly um, when people are trying to lose weight they say things like um, well I'm training I'm eating a lot of protein and I'm doing lots of salads and they they start to miss out vegetables as a complete food group Um, And then they start getting issues with their hormones. They may start getting issues with constipation. They may start getting issues with sleep because the lack of appreciation that we actually need carbohydrates for mood regulation And we need carbohydrates for bowel function. And we also need carbohydrates to manage our hormones from our liver in terms of hormone recycling. So um, a big knock-on issue from a weight management issue tends to be all these other things that because they're trying to minimise calorie intake, um, they're not appreciating the food for the actual food group requirement that we have for all carbohydrates. Now, obviously, all carbohydrates are not equal. So a, a chocolate croissant versus a plateful of vegetables. Um, a plate full of vegetables is obviously what we're looking for as opposed to um, the chocolate croissant. So it's the right type of carbohydrates as well. Mm.
0: It's become quite fashionable, hasn't it, to follow a low-carb diet? And I hear yeah. people say to me, Oh, I'm a low carb, we're even a no carb, and I'll say, What no vegetables? Oh well I'll I'll eat some veg. And yeah. people forget that's a, <laughs> a carbohydrate. But don't worry about eating it. Um, yeah. but it has it is a bit fatty, the low carb diet thing. Yeah. Um, you know, as, as these things move in fashions and trends. Um but yeah, I mean and that that's a mistake because we need those vegetables, we need that that fibre. We need yeah. that balance. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Brilliant. Um number three.
1: And um, skipping breakfast, we can read about that on on um, websites, in, in magazines. Um, but often because people are time-precious, what they don't quite get is that um, at the, in the morning, our metabolism is running at its highest, and that's when we need fuel. So if they see their bodies more as a car, if they need to get going first thing in the morning, they also need to top it up with some petrol, with some fuel to get going. So skipping breakfast um, is more about time and also... For some people, it's about calorie management. So they skip it thinking, well, I've got a big lunch and I've got a dinner this evening. And actually, if they had breakfast first thing, they'd find that lunch would be more balanced. They wouldn't have the cravings for sugar or those energy dips in the afternoon because they're running on um, a decent amount of fuel as opposed to saving up calories for later.
0: Hmm. And skipping breakfast would be mistake number three. Okay, and... Would you suggest? I mean, I guess this is very personal from one individual to another. Yeah. But the old adage of breakfasting like a king, and then the the, yeah. the lunches a slightly smaller meal, yeah. and the dinners even smaller than that is that what you would typically recommend? For I mean, bear in mind I'm, we're talking on averages now.
1: Yes, definitely. I would be be recommending that, and I think that need leads me nicely into the the, the next thing that people do, number four, which is portion sizes. Um, often when people are trying to calorie control or use things like MyFitnessPal where they're calorie tracking um, what they don't necessarily appreciate particularly if they're looking at weight management is the balancing of blood sugars that's important, not not the calories mm. so if we calories from a perspective of um looking at maybe a, a burger on our plate a burger with kind of all the relishes in etc will possibly run at about 500 calories but 500 calories from a piece of lean meat with vegetables is a much bigger serving size mm. so just tracking calories on their own and not looking at portion size and not understanding how we need to maintain blood sugar levels is a bit of a misnomer when they're looking at weight management. So one of the things I tend to use in terms of um, looking at portion size is using something called the rule of palm. And the rule of palm is where you look at your hands together, uh, placed uh, maybe on a, a surface, and using that as your size of plate So obviously, my hands will differ to your hand size, Leanne. So I would need um, a portion size that's smaller and more appropriate to my five foot nothing. Um, so it's an easy way to control portion size Mm. and we should be looking for that palm to be your protein Uh, we should be looking for your finger length on one hand to be your complex carbohydrates and then we should be looking at the other hand to be your vegetables fruit and salad Right. Um, so we also would be looking at the depth of your hands. So if you've got big hands and a you know, big guy as opposed to a, a tiny woman, would be looking at the depth of the hands. So it would be the size in terms of the plate size, but also the depth of the hand. And that's a very easy way of determining portion size. Because I get a lot of people come and see me and say, I eat really healthily. And there's no way of determining portion size. Because even if they send you pictures of what they're eating um you know it depends on the plate size so by using the rule of palm we're able to give a guide as to what your portion size should be looking like
0: yeah and i think that's big because my observation is a lot of people eat more, too much food to, to yeah. sheer volume of food uh, even yeah. when it's under their control but if you go somewhere to not every restaurant but quite a lot particularly yeah. in the lower end and the faster food types will pile on the food It's a huge yeah. amount of huge volume of food and I mean, Obviously, all of this it needs to be flexed with the amount of activity and physical exercise yes, the person is getting. But, yeah, portion sizes, I think, is often where people get scuppered. They're eating the right kinds of things, but just the volume is wrong in proportion to the amount of movement and exercise they're doing. Yep, perfectly yeah, perfectly put. Cool. Okay, number five.
1: Um, so my last thing would be about eating healthy snacks. So there's been a massive increase on availability of Uh, packaged snacks that market themselves as maybe high in protein. Um, I don't really want to mention brands, but Mm -hmm. there are many brands out there that will say high protein. And regulation around food labelling is not as tight as it could be. So if we were to look at something like a 30 gram snack, we might notice that there's about 10 grams of protein and think, well, actually, that's not bad. But what we also need to be looking at is the sugar. So the sugar in those types of things can be often very high because they're using things like dates. Mm. And the key to managing weight is looking at blood sugar management. So those snacks appear to be healthy because we think we're getting a decent amount of protein in, but actually we'd be better off eating a whole food. So something like a piece of fruit, and then to slow down how that sugar hits your body, having it with a few nuts. Um, having something like a um, smoothie mid-afternoon and adding in um, some uh, things, something like uh, oats and just whizzing that is a much healthier way because you're using natural whole foods mm-hmm. and using something like oats, which is going to give you a soluble fibre. That's a much better snack than a processed, healthy snack. So often we're kind of a bit swayed by the marketing of a product when we're better off having a whole food. And fruit is often demonized because of the sugar content. But because we have fiber with that fruit, um, we are slowing down the way the sugar hits the body anyway. And if we eat it with something, like I mentioned, uh, a, a few nuts, we've got a bit of fat and protein in there, which again will slow down the glycemic index of that sugar hitting the body. So I think it's about healthy snacks and going back to what we do to be healthy, like fruit and veg, and just being a bit clever about how we eat those as opposed to these more um, healthy snacks that we can buy out in fast food places and supermarkets.
0: And mm. well, that's big business, isn't it? And a lot of them do and look fast. very healthy. They, they do, and they're expensive as well, yes. but they do actually, the marketing is clever. They look like quite a healthy snack. And I guess compared to some things they are, but you're saying to yeah. bring it back to, to whole food. So, but the fruit and nuts, so the nuts, the, the fat and the protein in the nut is slowing down the absorption of the carbohydrate. Yeah. Is that correct? That's exactly it. Therefore, you're not getting that. And it's probably worth spending a moment talking about blood sugars. So when we ingest food, um, as I understand it, we have a response, um, particularly to carbohydrate an insulin response. So the carbohydrate has caused a spike in blood sugar, and then the pancreas releases insulin to bind to that glucose, to then take it down to the muscles, uh, to the liver, and then fat Mm -hmm. cells. And it's balancing out those sort of spikes and dips of of blood sugar and insulin release that we really want to be mindful of, isn't it? So that we don't get Absolutely. energy spikes and then sudden dips. What other combinations can you think of that provide less of a spike and therefore lot more lasting energy? Um, I suppose that the first one would be the fruit and
1: nuts. Yep. The second one would be doing something with a, if you've got time, uh, a blender. So you're making yourself a nice vegetable drink um, adding in the soluble fiber to that, so adding in the oats again will slow down the way that hits your blood system. Um, even baking things like, or, or making uh, snacks in advance. So you can get lots of things like paleo balls in places like Whole Foods. And although they've got some sugar in, they've often got protein powders in. And there's nothing wrong with a protein powder, as long as it's kind of not using complete food substitute. Um, so it's a great way of getting protein in there that's kind of not with, not not in a burger, for example. Mm. But using eating some of those kind of homemade paleo snacks where we're getting protein in there and maybe some nuts. and not worrying about the fact that it might be calorifically higher than we think. It's the right type of calories. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Cool. We've probably got a few minutes, actually. Have you got any other... So, top the stage for us. Um, I've uh, got a little bit about alcohol, actually. Um, I see a fair
1: few clients, because they work in the city and they, you know, they're busy, they're doing a lot of plant entertainment, um, so they may find that their alcohol intake is something that they're very aware of. What I particularly see is that um, if, it's more actually prevalent in women, I have to say, that if they've had a uh, heavy night, the following day they often do what they call a detox, where they actually take in no calories and just do teas, detox teas. So sorry, not no calories, but minimal calories. So no solid food, but just detox teas. Now, there is a time and place for us to do something called intermittent fasting, which is when we deliberately starve the body of calories. But what I tend to see is that um, women tend to do this for more than say one day, they then will binge drink or or eat the following day because they see that as a reward given that they've not eaten anything for the last two days. And that plays havoc with blood sugars. So then they get a bit cross because they're not losing weight and they're saying, well, I can't lose weight. It doesn't matter if I eat lots or if I eat little, I can't lose weight. And they've got into this cycle of, of not managing their blood sugar levels. And that then makes the body retain calories when they do eat them uh, for fear of starvation so intermittent fasting is a huge thing we should perhaps do a podcast just on that Mm. where you know it can be used and very and very carefully and wisely used but when it's used indiscriminately in that way to allow for calorie excess or alcohol excess it doesn't work
0: yeah well let's come back to fasting but just on on the sub i mean alcohol inevitably um, people listening to this podcast are probably Drinkers, whether it's recreational, yeah. not all. Um, some maybe more than they would like. Um, yeah. I did a podcast a few weeks ago with a, an old friend of mine who actually gave up for six months. Loved it so much. She's carried on um, giving up, so she's completely alcohol free. Um, as am I. But I know a lot of people do enjoy recreational drinking, and they do enjoy drinking at the end of a work day But yeah. what what are the the implications of what 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 does the body have to do when it's purging alcohol? You know, what are the implications for our health? when we've had a few drinks? So one of the major things
1: is that um, when we drink alcohol, it speeds up something called phase one in our liver. So phase one is one of the liver processes. And um, I know, uh, Leanne, that you use some DNA testing service. Mm. And for some people like myself, my phase one runs fast. So if I was to drink indiscriminately, my phase one would be accelerated or made to run faster on a system that's already running fast. Then we have something called phase two in the liver, which takes away the toxins. And again, in the DNA test, for me, two of those processes are compromised. So I don't take away the end product of phase one. So what does that mean? That would mean for somebody like me that I actually feel really ill the next day. Um, or iller than most who've had maybe the same amount of alcohol. So not only is it an issue for somebody who um, uh, has issues like I do in terms of how it makes our liver run, but it's also an issue in terms of how it affects other metabolic processes. So if you were to wear something called a heart rate variability monitor, what we notice is if people were to fill in an online diary at the same time, that they would go into what's called the red, and that's kind of sympathetic dominance. So what does that mean in layman terms? It means basically you get a rubbish night's sleep, that your body is running like it... Um, is in a stress response yeah. so the implications aren't just on the liver the implications are also on sleep quality and sleep is the way your body restores so if you have drunk before bed or you know in an evening and you don't get a decent night's sleep and even if you do get a decent night's sleep you'd still be running on the red. so you're not allowing your body to get the rest on top of that, we've got all the issues around dehydration. So if people already aren't drinking enough water, we've got the added complication that alcohol will amplify that in terms of dehydration on the body. Mm. And I suppose the last thing about alcohol is the calorific intake. So something like a small glass of wine, if it was 125 mils, you're probably looking at about 125 calories. And when we're using things like MyFitnessPal and we're trying to account for calories, that often gets missed. So they'll say, well, actually, I, um, I'm not drinking, uh, I'm drinking, or they don't account for that in the calorific intake. Mm. So it, it's about calories, it's about blood sugar management, it's about liver, and it's about dehydration, and it's about poor sleep and not allowing your body to restore.
0: Yeah. It's definitely worth keeping in mind before you head out for those drinks or those extra <laughs> drinks. Um, all right, Absolutely. brilliant. Um, last question for me, um, I'm mindful of your time. You know, What is the future of personalized nutrition in your on your view um
1: i think as as we heading to an age where genetic testing is very affordable um i think that more people are posting either on uh, blogs etc about genetic testing and how that's changed the way they have um looked at their nutrition and what results have had so i think because it's very readily available it it, it's becoming even more prevalent. So I would say probably about 20% of my clients have done some form of genetic testing even before they've come to see me. Uh, maybe they bought a test um, in a, a supermarket or they have found something online. I think what's really key is seeing someone who's qualified to help you understand the results because a lot of these gene tests are looking at things that are modifiable, which means that if we change our diet, we can change the expression of that gene. And sometimes we're looking at things that appear not to be modifiable. And that can create a whole um, raft of other issues in terms of, well, what can I do about this? I have this gene. And there are many things we can do in terms of preventing or attempting to prevent that gene switching on. So I think that genetic testing will be the future of nutrition I also see that it will affect how uh, medication is prescribed. So for example, we could look at how the liver metabolizes. And if we don't metabolize it in the right way, it might be that a certain medication is going to have less effect on us than another medication. So I see that it will also, will also get personalized medica- medication as mm. well in the next yeah. 10 years. Um, I've been to a few conferences like Food Matters Live where there are trials within the NHS looking at personalised medicine. We're a long way away from it, but maybe not as far as we think. I think that blood testing is becoming more available. There are lots of do-it-yourself kits and people are much more willing to spend money on those types of tests to take their health into their own hands. And I think it's fantastic because... Uh, Just taking that simple example about vegetables, if I see on a blood test somebody's LDL cholesterol slightly high and we start talking about diet, if they're on a low calorie diet or a low carb diet and they're not eating many vegetables, one of the ways we can influence LDL is look at um, their soluble fiber intake. And also look at things like their fruit intake and look at things like their alcohol intake. And all of those will affect their LDL cholesterol. So I think as more people move into managing their own health and being more proactive about it. The opportunities for people like myself, helping them um, get the optimal wellness that they desire is phenomenal because you're just helping them interpret results and changing, tweaking a few simple things to get big changes in their blood parameters and in their health going forward as well.
0: And I think in terms of of those blood parameters, you know, self-administer blood testing is now more and more popular, extremely affordable. Yeah. Um, I was at a a conference on Friday called the Future of Medicine. I'm going to Facebook Live later today about what I heard in that conference. But there was some amazing stuff all the way down to a chip you can insert into a part of your body that monitors all your basic signals. So your cholesterol, your blood pressure, heart yeah. rate, et cetera, and alerts you or even in some cases alerts the emergency services if some of your your variables fall above or below a certain area. I'm not sure obviously if you're critically ill in the case of the ambulance, yeah. but it really is a fascinating area. And I don't think we're that far away from a lot of this stuff that, that no, on the face of it. it I, is I, I agree
1: with you. Yeah. Um, and it's becoming more affordable as well, Leanne. It's not, it's not kind of um, aspirational um, in quite the same way as it used to be. Mm. It's much more of a, yeah, absolutely, that's what I need and I'm going to go and do it.
0: Yeah, completely agree. Rita, we're on, we're on time, unfortunately, but thank you so much um, for, for giving us that information and your time. Um, And yeah, it would be great to do another one on intermittent fasting. I think that would be really interesting. Take care. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye.